0: Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, September 12th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts.
1: I'm Melissa Topsher. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. France offers aid to Morocco after a catastrophic earthquake.
0: The U.S. commemorates the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks.
1: G20 leaders reach a consensus statement but soften their language on Ukraine.
0: While the summit makes a historic choice to admit the African Union as a permanent member.
1: Vladimir Putin's party dominates local Russian elections and tensions.
0: The U.S. boosts ties with Vietnam.
1: A controversial dam is completed in Ethiopia.
0: Gun rights groups sue New Mexico's governor over an emergency firearm ban.
1: Google begins a prominent antitrust trial.
0: The speculation mounts about India's potential name change to Bharat.
1: In our top story, France is offering earthquake aid to Morocco amid a controversy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Anadolu Ajansi, and World Crunch. On Monday, France's Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna announced that Paris is prepared to provide 5 million euros or $5.4 million to Morocco in earthquake aid. The announcement comes amid controversy that Morocco is refusing France's assistance over the Western Sahara issue. On Saturday, a catastrophic 6.8 magnitude earthquake rocked Morocco with an epicenter southeast of Marrakech. Rescue operations are ongoing with thousands of people dead. The death toll is near 2,500 as of Monday and is expected to rise. Morocco and France have shared a strange diplomatic relationship in recent years as Morocco seeks France's recognition of Western Sahara As Moroccan territory, relations have become further complicated as France's President Emmanuel Macron has sought to foster closer ties with Algeria, with whom Morocco shares strained ties. France has rejected the allegation of the denial of aid. Colonna said, Morocco, which is a sovereign country, and chose to prioritize the arrival of support regarding the countries who are available, including France. Rabat, Morocco's capital city, has accepted aid from Qatar, Tunisia, and Spain. While Spain has 56 rescue personnel already on the ground, France has experienced teams on standby that include rescue dogs and equipment.
0: Well, those were the facts. Thank you, Eric. And on this program, we separate the facts from the narrative spins and we'll begin this round of spins with an establishment critical narrative from Africa News. Morocco's message is being heard loud and clear around the world with its refusal to accept aid from France. Paris is actively trying to sweep its diplomatic tensions and colonial past under the rug by pushing the decision back on Rabat. King Mohammed VI is working to provide aid to his people by surrounding them with the expertise and relief provided by friendly nations. The king is not willing to compromise the position of Morocco with a country with an imperial history willing to fraternize with hostile enemies.
1: We follow that up with a pro-establishment narrative coming from the Times of Israel. The UN estimates that even as the death toll climbs, more than 300,000 people in Morocco have been affected by the earthquake and will require assistance. Even so, the leadership in Rabat is in no hurry to accept aid from the international community. The US, France, the UK, Turkey, Algeria, and Taiwan are examples that all have rescue teams, medications, supplies, and equipment standing by. Time is of the essence, and this issue must transcend geopolitics.
0: The U.S. commemorates the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, the Washington Examiner, NBC New York, the New York Times, and the Deseret News. On Monday, Americans and their elected officials honored the 22nd anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terror attacks. Vice President Kamala Harris, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, and New York City Mayor Eric Adams attended the name-reading ceremony for victims in Lower Manhattan, with President Joe Biden planning to attend a ceremony at a military base in Alaska. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, announced that at 8.56 a.m., the time the first plane hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center, Congress would recognize Patriot Day by observing a moment of silence. The attacks were also honored by the New York Police Department's 19th Precinct, as well as Representative Anthony Desposito, Republican of New York. Elsewhere, the small county of Goochland, Virginia, held two ceremonies. 911 dispatchers in Columbus, Indiana, broadcast a remembrance message to first responders. Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts raised and lowered the flag in Fenton, Missouri, and Monmouth County, New Jersey, made 9-11 an official holiday this year. Though politicians at first steered clear of using 9-11 in campaigns, former President George W. Bush in 2004 used footage of remains being carried out in a re-election ad. Subsequently, presidential candidates John McCain, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and Ron DeSantis have all mentioned it to some degree. Candidates for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination took to ceremonies and social media on Monday. Former Vice President Mike Pence attended an event in Ankeny, Iowa. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie spoke at a barbecue in New Hampshire. And Trump posted, God bless the memory of all those who perished, to Truth Social. The attacks in which hijackers crashed planes into the North and South World Trade Center buildings, the Pentagon, and an empty field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, killed more than 3,000 people. According to the 9-11 memorial in New York City, A tribute of light will run from dusk to dawn Monday to honor both the victims and the unbreakable spirit of New York.
1: Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Town Hall. Joe Biden disappointingly chose not to visit one of the three 9-11 crash sites. When asked why he couldn't, the White House said, quote, presidents were not still going to visit Hawaii 22 years after Pearl Harbor. His lack of attendance is a major gaffe.
0: Here's the Democratic narrative from ABC News. President Biden is not the first president to commemorate this sad day from somewhere other than a crash site, and that includes President Bush and Obama. September 11 is a day to mourn the Americans we lost and boost the morale of the soldiers and first responders who continue to protect us from the threat of terrorism, not to engage in petty politics.
1: And there's a cynical narrative coming from Intercept. Partisan politics aside, Americans must not forget to demand transparency from their government regarding the tragedy of 9-11. Though Bush downplayed it for years, we now know that the CIA was following two of the hijackers all the way up until they entered the U.S., just weeks before the attacks. This, and probing the pretenses for the decades of casualties caused by the, quote, war on terror, are legitimate questions that deserve answers. (coughs) G20 leaders reach a consensus statement but soften their language on Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNBC, CNN, Politico Pro, Reuters, and France 24. In a major diplomatic breakthrough Saturday, G20 leaders managed to adopt a consensus statement for the summit in India, overcoming deep divisions over the war in Ukraine. The 83-paragraph document, which focused mostly on measures to improve development in the global south, drew Ukraine's ire as it omitted words from the 2022 statement, avoiding a direct condemnation of Russia to reach a compromise. U.S. President Joe Biden said of the summit and its flurry of bilateral sidebar activities, quote, this is a big deal. The world stands at an inflection point in history, a point where decisions we make today affect the course of all our futures for decades to come. The Russia-Ukraine war proved to be the most complex issue on the G20 agenda, demanding hundreds of hours of discussions to reach a consensus as Russia, China, and some developing countries objected to more forceful language regarding the conflict. Several draft versions reportedly contained no language on the matter. In its final version, the declaration urged respect for territorial integrity and sovereignty, stating that all countries should also abstain from action against the political independence of any state. Leaders also agreed to triple renewable energy capacity globally by 2030 accepting the need to phase down coal power, as well as moving forward on issues such as reforming institutions like the World Bank. The summit was formally closed on Sunday, with India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi passing a ceremonial gavel to Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, whose country will take the presidency in December.
0: Thank you, Eric, for those facts. And this round of spin starts with an establishment critical narrative from Sputnik International. The Global South has successfully blocked attempts from Western powers to Ukrainianize the G20 agenda, protecting its own legitimate interests and needs. This further indicates that developing countries will no longer accept the use of multilateral tools to promote one-sided perspectives, especially in a forum that hasn't been established to discuss situations such as the Ukraine-Russia conflict.
1: We counter that with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Bloomberg. The softened language on Russia's war in Ukraine is not a Western defeat, but rather a strategic move to boost India's global influence in a bid to isolate Russia and China. While substantially similar to the joint statement issued in Bali last year, the latest communique has brought the West closer to major democracies in the global South, which are key swing actors in world issues. The revised language on the Ukraine front is unfortunate, but ultimately, the entire statement is a boon for democracies worldwide.
0: And we have our first nerd narrative of the show from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 4% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukrainian conflict before 2024. More news from the G20 summit as leaders admit the African Union as a permanent member. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Euronews, CNN, ABC News, The Indian Express, and NDTV. On Saturday, Indian Prime Minister and the host of the 18th G20 Summit in New Delhi, Narendra Modi, announced that the African Union would join the alliance of the world's top economies. The 55-member African Union became the second regional bloc after the European Union to become a permanent member, potentially turning the G20 into the G21. The African Union, which has 60% of the world's renewable energy assets, is expected to push for reforms to a global financial system that it deems unfavorable to Africa's resource-rich countries. Meanwhile, G20's expansion is expected to aid India's pitch to become a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council with Africa's support. The development comes as several countries, including Russia, China, Spain, and Mexico, skipped the summit. Established in 1999, the G20 accounts for about two-thirds of the world's population, 85% of global GDP and 75% of global trade.
1: Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with an establishment-critical narrative coming from Mint. India's push to include the African Union in the G20 is in sharp contrast to China's debt diplomacy, which suggests the expansion will likely expose the existing rifts about the bloc's goals and purposes among the G20 countries.
0: Here's the pro-establishment narrative from News 18. This is an historic day, not only for the G20 but for the entire global South, as it proves that the world's most powerful countries can bridge existing political and economic differences to create a more equitable, fair, and inclusive international order. I think somebody in branding is really mad that they're going to have to change all the G20 signage to G21. Yeah,
1: I've had some business cards printed, and I'm going to have to get everything redone now.
0: (laughs) What's the one that you can get $500 for $20? Oh,
1: you know what? You're right. Vistaprint. Yes, that's the one. Yes. Gotta check out Vistaprint. You're yeah, right. That's, yeah, okay. that's my
0: one and only go to source. I know.
1: Putin's party dominates regional elections amid attacks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters and the Associated Press. President Vladimir Putin and his United Russia party have claimed strong results following regional and municipal elections in Russia on Sunday, including four regions of Ukraine claimed by Moscow to have been annexed last year. Elections were held in 79 Russian regions. The Ukrainian regions of Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia, as well as in Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014. The votes in Ukrainian territories were condemned as, quote, sham elections in violation of international law by Kiev and its Western partners, including the U.S., the U.K., and the Council of Europe. Stanislav Adrychuk, co-chair of voters' rights group Golos, designated as a foreign agent by the Kremlin, alleged instances of electoral corruption across the country, claiming to Reuters that results were not from, quote, real elections meanwhile russia appointed officials in ukrainian regions reported various attempts of voter disruption a russian official in the Kherson region stated that a grenade was discovered outside one of the polling stations there delaying its opening until the grenade was disposed of also a russian official in the donetsk region claimed that multiple staff were wounded and injured without further elaboration nikolai bulayev deputy chairman of russia's central election commission also revealed that a drone had destroyed a polling station In the Zaporizhia region, hours before it opened, no staff were present at the time of the attack.
0: Those were the facts, and here the narrative spins with an anti-Russia narrative coming from Reuters. The Russian elections are a sham and a violation of international law. With various allegations of corruption, rigging, and the repression of opposition candidates, Russia's supposed results do not hide the dubious reality of Putin's real popularity within the state.
1: Sputnik International gives us a pro-Russian narrative. The results of the free and fair elections in the reclaimed areas of Russia come together as a single, prosperous nation. While the West tried its best to see that these elections didn't take place, with the Russian Electoral Commission facing a surge in cyberattacks, strong voter turnout showed that the will of the Russian people could not be denied.
0: And we have another nerd narrative, this one saying there's a 50% chance that Vladimir Putin will cease to hold the office of President of Russia by February 2026. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, the U.S. and Vietnam strengthen their partnership during President Biden's visit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, The Hill, The Associated Press, and The Washington Post. U.S. President Joe Biden on Sunday during a visit to Vietnam agreed to a comprehensive strategic partnership with the Southeast Asian nation. The deal has a diplomatic piece as well as a business push to boost the production of semiconductors. In turn, Vietnam elevated the U.S. to Hanoi's highest diplomatic status, on par with China and Russia. In addition, executives from leading U.S. technology companies met with Vietnamese tech executives and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Hanoi on Monday. Also, a meeting between Biden and Prime Minister Pham Minh Chin of Vietnam produced a new $7.8 billion deal for Vietnam to purchase planes from Boeing, a deal that is expected to support more than 30,000 U.S. jobs. Amid speculation that the U.S. reached out to Vietnam as a strike against China, Biden in a news conference said the effort wasn't focused on containing China, but rather on stabilizing global relations through better relationships throughout Asia. Biden's last stop was at a memorial for late Republican Senator John McCain. McCain was a longtime friend of Biden's. The former senator from Arizona was held prisoner for five years during the Vietnam War.
1: Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is coming from the New York Times. It's a democratic narrative. It's in the best interest of the U.S. to let bygones be bygones and forge closer diplomatic and trade relationships with Vietnam in the face of China's increased aggressiveness militarily and economically in the region. Although Vietnam will likely remain close to China, the U.S. will now be on stronger footing by deepening partnerships in the region thanks to Biden's diplomacy.
0: And the Daily Caller brings us a Republican narrative. Biden is being deceived in his attempt to look tough on China. He's making deals with Vietnam's ruling communist regime while they continue to maintain tight relations with Beijing and even Moscow. This is good for Vietnam's public diplomacy, but ultimately makes the U.S. look weaker.
1: In our next story, a controversial dam has been completed in Ethiopia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Middle East Eye, Al Jazeera, DW, Business Insider, BBC News and The National. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed on Sunday announced that the East African country completed the fourth and final phase of filling a reservoir for its hydroelectric power plant on the Nile River, known as the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam or GERD. In his statement, Ahmed said the controversial construction faced numerous challenges, including internal difficulties and, quote, external pressure, and expressed confidence in the country's ability to finish the project to, quote, build tomorrow's strong Ethiopia on a solid foundation. Under construction since 2011, the $4 billion GERD is set to be the largest dam in Africa when operational. With six megawatts of power capacity, it's expected to double Ethiopia's electricity generation. Egypt and Sudan both opposed the project and repeatedly urged Addis Ababa to stop filling the dam. While Ethiopia says the construction is vital for the country's electrification and economic goals, both countries fear its completion could significantly affect their supply of Nile water. On Sunday, the Egyptian Foreign Ministry issued a statement condemning the unilateral and illegal fourth filing, which it claimed violated a declaration of principles signed by Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia in 2015. Negotiations between the three governments, which resumed in Cairo in August over the operation and filling of the dam, ended without a breakthrough. According to the Ethiopian government, the next round of talks is to be held in Addis Ababa later this month.
0: Thank you, Eric, for the facts, and we'll begin with a Narrative A from Sada El Balad English. Ethiopia's continued unilateral filling of the dam violates international agreements on the use of the Nile waters. Until there's a legally binding agreement on the filling and operation of the Renaissance Dam, this project must be stopped. Both Egypt and Sudan have legitimate rights to the Nile waters, and these rights are integral to their national security. It's now up to Addis Ababa to show political will and respond positively to Egyptian efforts to reach an agreement.
1: Narrative B comes from the reporter Ethiopia. While Cairo claims that GERD threatens Egypt's water supply, it is in reality primarily concerned about losing its illegitimate control over the Nile. From the day Ethiopia announced its plans to build this massive project, Egypt was openly hostile to the project, with the U.S. on its side to pressure Addis Ababa. Ethiopia is the source of roughly 85% of the Nile's flow and has every right to use this resource to provide affordable energy to its 120 million people. As long as Cairo's only concern in negotiations is to maintain its dominance, the talks will yield no fruit.
0: And there's narrative C provided by The National. Unfortunately, talks between Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sudan have not yet brought the hoped-for breakthrough. However, the mere fact that the three countries are seeking a diplomatic rather than a military solution already represents a success in a region plagued by crises. In the case of GERD, all three Nile nations have legitimate concerns. Although managing shared water resources is a complex issue, there are international models for successful negotiations that benefit all parties involved. The New Mexico governor is sued over a gun-related emergency order. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, The Guardian, CNN, and Fox News. On Saturday, the National Association for Gun Rights, a gun rights group, and group member Foster Haynes filed suit to block New Mexico Democratic Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's emergency order. The order suspended the right to publicly carry firearms in Albuquerque and surrounding Bernalillo County. Previously, Lujan Grisham on Friday issued a public health order restricting both open and concealed carry of firearms in response, she said, to recent shootings in her state. Recently, an 11-year-old boy was fatally shot on his way home from a baseball game. A 4-year-old girl was killed in her bed at a motorhome, and a 13-year-old girl was also killed. The lawsuit, which lists the governor and New Mexico Department of Health Secretary Patrick Allen as defendants, accuses the governor's order of violating the Second Amendment. Although the governor's spokesperson said the order is related to a suspension of state law and not the Constitution, even some political allies, including Democratic Representative Ted Lieu, Democrat of California, and gun safety advocate David Hogg, voiced disagreements with Luhan Grisham's order.
1: Melissa, thank you for the facts of this story. We began our round of spins with a Republican narrative coming from American Thinker. Neither this order nor any restrictions on lawful gun possession will do anything to reduce crime. Yet, here's another Democrat deciding it's better to dismiss the Constitution's absolute right for law-abiding citizens to carry firearms rather than reconsidering their soft-on-crime policies, which are the reason for the nation's crime wave. While the courts will again stop this left-leaning power grab, it's about time Democrats stop trying these types of unconstitutional actions.
0: Where there's a Republican, there's a Democratic narrative, this time from the Washington Post. Something has to be done to slow the gun violence epidemic in the U.S. Even if a government action is eventually deemed unconstitutional by the courts, it's worth instituting temporary measures and drawing attention to the issue through litigation. Republicans should offer solutions to the gun violence problem rather than just insisting everyone be allowed to carry an unlimited number of
1: guns. The nerds from Metaculus give us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.4 small firearms per capita in the USA by 2029. An antitrust lawsuit against Google is set to begin. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, New York Times, Guardian, and Washington Post. As the U.S. Justice Department is set to bring its antitrust lawsuit against Google on Tuesday, rivals of the tech giant, such as search engine DuckDuckGo, will be watching as the U.S. government argues that Google uses unfair tactics to dominate internet searches. The case will be held before the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. The case will be overseen by Judge Ahmet Mehta, who was appointed by former President Barack Obama in 2014. Mehta, who graduated law school a year before Google was founded, previously worked as a criminal defense attorney in San Francisco, California and Washington, D.C. Though Judge Meta tossed out charges that Google designed its search results page to harm rivals such as Expedia or Yelp, he will allow accusations that the company pays billions each year to, quote, secure default status for its general search engine to prohibit its counterparties from dealing with its competitors. The DOJ's case, which accuses Google of paying popular device manufacturers such as Apple, LG, Motorola and Samsung to shield it from competition, was originally filed by the Trump administration in 2020, with the Biden administration subsequently filing a second lawsuit. In an opinion unsealed in August, Judge Mehta was quoted as saying that Google's brand name has become so ubiquitous that dictionaries recognize it as a verb, also noting that the company held 90% of the search engine market share in 2020. The plaintiffs are Jonathan Cantor, U.S. Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust, Kenneth Denser, a Deputy Director in the Civil Division of the DOJ, and Colorado AG Philip Weiser. The defendants, Google's CEO Sundar Pichai and President of Global Affairs Kent Walker, will be represented by the law firm Williams & Connolly.
0: Thank you, Eric, and we'll start this round of narratives with a narrative A from the week. Even though Judge Mehta narrowed the scope of this case, the core argument of the lawsuit leaves Google at extreme risk of facing an antitrust ruling against it. Consequences for such a historic ruling could include forcing the tech giant to restructure its company, as well as massive fines. Bringing this case to court is already a win for the Davids of the world, and the Goliaths should be worried about the momentum it builds.
1: Narrative B comes from Forbes. While smaller search engines are understandably upset that they can't become a default web browser, the reason Google gets prioritized over others is that it provides the cheapest and most efficient internet search process. Antitrust law is supposed to protect against companies monopolizing an industry to raise prices, but Google only makes its products more accessible and affordable.
0: And the nerds are at it again, this time saying there's a 50% chance that iPhones will have a default search provider other than Google by July 2028. In India, speculation mounts about the potential name change to Bharat. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Euronews, The New York Post, Reuters, Al Jazeera, NDTV, and the Associated Press. Bharat is an ancient Sanskrit word that has referred to India for more than 2,000 years. The country is referred to as Bharat in Hindi, while it is called India in English. The names are used interchangeably, along with Hindustan, which means Land of the Hindus, in Urdu. While hosting the summit, Modi sat behind a nameplate labeled Bharat. In the past, such cards would say India when addressing an international crowd in English. However, the G20 logo featured both Bharat and India. Rahul Gandhi, India's main opposition leader, called a potential name change absurd when asked about the name change in Europe for a five-day trip. Gandhi told reporters that the BJP's plan to change India's name is a diversion tactic away from Modi's dealings with business leader Guatamadani. At an event in France, Gandhi said both names are perfectly acceptable and used throughout India's constitution. Meanwhile, Modi called the group India, the opposition bloc standing for the Indian National Development Inclusive Alliance, arrogant and accused Gandhi's Congress Party of scheming against the poor. It has been suggested that the name change reflects the BJP's Hindu nationalist sentiment of removing colonial names in the country. Various towns, regions, and streets have been renamed as part of Modi's efforts to reclaim India's Hindu past.
1: Thank you for those facts, Melissa. The Economic Times provides narrative A for this story. Prime Minister Narendra Modi is trying to divert attention away from his business dealings by pushing an absurdist name change. The BJP has failed India by using its power to silence opposing parties and politicians. And with the public catching on, Modi is in search of a new angle. The fact is that both India and Bharat are used interchangeably in the Indian constitution, and there is nothing anti Hindu about the name India. Modi's tactics are pure diversion.
0: Narrative B comes from Op India. While opposition leaders seem to be outraged about India being referred to as Bharat at the G20 summit, the fact is that many of Modi's most vocal critics have themselves expressed a desire to change India's name. There are many documents from opposition leaders saying that they would change India's name to Bharat and want to reclaim India's Hindu origins. However, they are so fixated on opposing Modi that they will scream about anything he does. Why not make this change now?
1: Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, September 12th, 2023.
0: Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: For more information on Verity, please visit our website, verity.news. You can also download the Verity Podcast app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steider inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.